Our first scripture can be found in the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verses 15 through 35. It is on page 45 in your pew Bibles. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Our second reading can be found in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 33 and 44 through 52, starting on page 1518 in your pew Bibles. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. 
When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. may, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, may our eyes be opened, may our ears be unstopped, may our hearts be receptive to whatever it is you would give us today through your word. Lord, speak to us, for we, your servants, are here, and we know, Lord, that you alone have the words of life, and without you we can do nothing. So touch us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a a kid, and even now, I'm fascinated by advertisements, commercials. Now, how many of you, when you're watching TV, when you get to the ads, you skip right through it? Some of you do that, right? Well, as a kid, I loved ads. I had um, old Life magazine ads for Volkswagen buses framed around my bedroom. I remember uh, my dad had all these old ads for camel cigarettes, you know. And I'd flip through old magazines and TV and I'd look at ads and I was taken in by the, the color and the pictures and the words. And as I got older, I was fascinated by TV commercials. Because a good TV commercial or a good magazine advertisement or or, or whatever medium through which an advertisement comes to you tries to do one thing, doesn't it? Tries to convince you that somehow your life is bereft without that product and that it will improve greatly if you just get that Volkswagen bus or buy that pack of Camel cigarettes or purchase that... um, new computer or new electronic device, whatever it may be. Now, we have more available to us in an instant than ever before. I can pull out my phone. I can pull up that Amazon app. Oh, isn't that dangerous? And I can buy whatever I'd want with just a couple touches of my finger. It's incredible. We have more access to anything than any civilization has ever had. We can get more stuff. There are more commercials and advertisements coming at us all the time promising us joy and happiness and fulfillment if we just get that product. 
And yet, people, our society, both individually and collectively, is more lonely, more depressed, more anxious than ever before. Do you think there's a correlation? Very likely there is. I was reminded this week as I was looking at this text from Genesis, and we've been going through the book of Genesis since right after Pentecost, that problems in the human condition have not changed at all across time and culture in these 4,000 years or so of events from the book of Genesis and today. Human beings still struggle with the same things. We want connection. We want love. We want acceptance. We want to feel fulfilled. We want to know that we matter. That somebody cares about us. That somebody wants us and longs for us. And yet so often, thousands of years ago and today, we seek that fulfillment in so many different places, through so many different things, running after this thing or that thing, a spouse, a relationship, a kid, a career, a new product, perhaps thinking that now, finally, we'll find what we've been looking for. An aching in the soul might be satiated. Hunger might be fulfilled. A a longing might be met. And I think if we're brutally honest... Maybe you would attest as well as I can attest to it. That often at the end of the day, that thing, that person, that relationship, good as it may be, doesn't quite fill the longing of the soul. The great bishop of the church, the theologian, St. Augustine, said that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Because he made us for himself. C.S. Lewis mentioned the same thing talking about the great emptiness. Great emptiness. That we fill and fill and fill and fill and fill and still it's there. Still there. I think we see that in the characters in Genesis we've looked at so far, haven't we? They've all been messed up. They've all been liars and deceivers. They've used one another for their own profit and their own advancement. Find that all the way back to Abraham, the one with whom the covenant is made, and then down through Jacob, we looked at last week, in the last two weeks, Jacob and Esau, and, and Jacob deceives his father Isaac to get the firstborn blessing dresses up as Esau, which, as you recall, was his dad's favorite. And his mom, Rebecca, her favorite was Jacob. And so out of that family strife, we see this deceit. We see family members using each other. And Rebecca and Jacob collude to to get Isaac to, to think in his old age with his poor eyesight in his dimly lit tent, to think that Jacob is actually Esau. So he lays hands and confers the fatherly blessing on Jacob, thinking it's Esau. And when he and when uh, when Esau finds out, he's furious and vows that once Isaac is dead, that he will kill Jacob. 
And so Rebekah, to protect him, sends him away to go live with her brother, Jacob's uncle Laban. And last week, en route to, to go to Laban, Jacob lays down in the rocks with a big old stone as his pillow and has an encounter with God. He sees a ladder going up into heaven and God's messengers coming and going and God speaks to him and confirms that even Jacob, someone who's quickly becoming one of my least favorite characters in the whole Bible, even Jacob be the one to carry on the blessings of the covenant. And through Jacob's line, the Messiah eventually would be born. Well, in the story today, we find that Jacob has arrived with Laban. He's there. He's going to live with him. He'll be safe there. He's going to work for him. And then he sees Rachel. And he says to Laban, he wants to strike a deal with him that he'll work. Now, get this. There's no negotiation. It was, uh, on, on average, it was about 30 shekels, or 35 shekels, somewhere in there, would be the cost of, uh, uh, of procuring a wife. Jacob's willing to work seven years. Now, the average pay was about two shekels a month. So all you got to do is do the math. That's what, 14 shekels a year, 14 times 7? I'm not good at math. I'm not going to try it and embarrass myself and tell you what it is. But that's more than 30 or 35. He doesn't even negotiate it down to the going rate. He worked seven years. Now notice, if you listen carefully or you read carefully as Sharon was reading Scripture for us, Laban doesn't agree to it. Jacob hears what he wants to hear. Listen to what Laban said. It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. Do you hear yes in that? No. But Jacob, so overcome with infatuation for Rachel... Here's yes. He hears what he wants to hear. And so for seven years, he works for Rachel. And when the seven years are up and it comes time to marry her, in the ancient world, you don't have to put on your archaeological and historical hat and do a whole lot of heavy lifting to, to imagine what the scene might be. The wife was heavily veiled, during the whole wedding, and during the dinner, and during the party. She was heavily veiled. And you can imagine they didn't have electric lights back then. So things were dimly lit as you got into the evening, and and of course there was lots of eating and, and lots of drinking at a wedding. And so when it comes time for the consummation of the marriage, Jacob, who thinks it's Rachel, but it's, her sister Leah. They go into the tent. It's dark. Jacob's had a lot to drink. And in the morning, he finds out he's been had. Listen again to the words in Genesis. When morning came, there was Leah. 
So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't you? Why have you deceived me? The same question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Why have you deceived me? And Jacob, whose name means the one who deceives, who's procured a birthright and a blessing from his father through deception, has met his match in Laban. Listen to Laban's reply. And listen closely. It is not our custom here to give the younger in marriage before the older one. And I imagine in a moment, Jacob is cut to the quick. Because what he has done in the past to his own family has now been visited upon him. Where he deceived his father into getting the blessing reserved for the elder. Which was the custom that the older got the blessing and not the younger. And what does Laban say? It's not our custom to give the younger before the older. If there's one constant in all of Scripture, and there are many, but there's one that becomes so apparent from Genesis all the way to the end of the New Testament, it is this, that the measure in which you treat others will be visited upon you. If you are deceitful in your relationships, then you yourself will be deceived. If you use other people to get ahead, you may find yourself in a position where others use you for their advancement. If you make a living in your life out of manipulation and lying, double-handed tactics, that will be visited on you, and often more so. but a life lived out of gentleness and meekness and purity and honesty and faithfulness and integrity. That's a life that God honors. We see over and over and over again in the scriptures and so clearly in Genesis, this foundational book that prepares us in understanding everything that comes after it. We find over and over and over again in the pages of the text that there are just no heroes which would have been so utterly foreign to the ancient world. Because if you go back to the old epics, and then when you move into the Greco-Roman world, you find these stories and stories and stories about virtues and heroes and people who adhere to them, and they do well, and, and they advance, and they get ahead. And yet in the book of Genesis, where are these characters? Where are these people? Where are the good upstanding people who, who are heroes, who, who, who fight on behalf of, of those who have no voice, who live a life of virtue and honor? Well, they're not really there. And the few that we have are secondary characters. Friends, that's the point. That's the point of these stories. None of us are good. None of us at our core are exactly how we were created to be. That all got messed up in Genesis chapter 3. 
And in Genesis 3, you could substitute your name in there for Adam and Eve because the human condition is the same. We don't want to live in the boundaries with which God has set for us and God's design for creation and for human flourishing and for right relationship. And over and over and over again, down through the ages, the human story seems to be that we think we know more than God. And so if it weren't Adam and Eve, it would be any other one of us. Which then sets humanity on this downward trajectory where deceit and dysfunction rules the day. Even among people that God uses. We find at the end of the day that these stories of these characters tell us something. That when left on our own, we are utterly hopeless. Were it not for God's grace that comes into our lives and for us is most clearly and perfectly and ultimately seen in the person of Jesus, God himself in human form without the grace of God coming into our lives, we are hopelessly caught in webs of deceit and manipulation and lying. But for God's grace, there is no way human effort or our own virtue or honor can pull us out of the morass of human existence. We need the grace of God. Now, there is a little light in this story, which I think is easy to overlook. And it comes in through a secondary character. Let's spend a moment with Leah. Imagine, if you will, Leah growing up in the shadow of her sister, who's gorgeous and beautiful. And as soon as Jacob sees her, he's utterly infatuated with her. He becomes so physically and emotionally enmeshed in her, perhaps thinking that in Rachel, finally, he can find what he's looking for. So much so that he worked seven years for her. You get a sense of how Rachel must have looked, what she was like. And Leah, which the Hebrew um, doesn't, the translation from into English doesn't quite make apparent the, the Hebrew that She's kind of homely. She likely had an eye condition. Maybe she was cross-eyed. And Laban, you know, he sees in Jacob his chance. There's nobody else going to come looking for Leah. So I'm going to give her to him. And look at Leah's life. Now, even in marriage, Jacob has Rachel now in our story. For seven more years of work, he's now given Rachel. And even in marriage, she's overshadowed by her sister. Jacob loves her. Jacob does not love Leah. Remember how I said for you a few weeks ago that when we come to the texts in the Bible, maybe most clearly and especially here in our Old Testament, that we need to differentiate between the prescriptive and the descriptive? Right? That just because something is laid out for us in the pages of the Bible does not mean that God supports or condones it. 
Like, for example, to come to this and to say that God approves of polygamy, well, if that's the conclusion that we take away, then frankly, we haven't really learned how to read. Because look, everybody in the Old Testament who enters into a polygamous relationship, it goes terribly bad. It's awful. It's not good. It's presented for us as a warning. Don't do this. So now Jacob has Rachel and Leah. He loves one. He doesn't love the other, just like his mom and dad. One parent loved one child. The other loved the other. And as you can imagine, Leah must have felt so caught, so depressed, so overwhelmed, so hopeless. And look what happens. She bears Reuben to Jacob. You know what the word, the name Reuben means? The one who sees. And so she names him, get this, she names him because what does she say? Maybe now Jacob will see me. And she bears another son. Named Simeon. You know what that name means? The one who hears. Maybe now my husband will hear me. And then she she bears a child named Levi. You know what the name Levi means? The one who attaches. And even she says, now at last my husband will become attached. She's looking for fulfillment in this relationship and it's not happening and she keeps bearing children, doing what a good wife in the ancient world would have done to bear male heirs to her husband. And still he doesn't see her. He doesn't hear her. He's not attached to her. Three children who all bear the name of something that Leah's looking for and that is connection with her husband. But how does this chapter end? She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Do you see the shift that happens with Leah? She's so focused on trying to get something from her husband to fill that inner longing and loneliness that she's carried with her perhaps since birth, when it's been very clear that she has not been loved or favored by her parents, by her sister, and now by her husband. And she's longing and looking for that. And when she shifts away from trying to find that in a human relationship and says, this time, I will praise the Lord, everything changes. Friends, in this story, it's not Jacob, it's not Laban, it's not Rachel, it's Leah who give us us an insight into what it's all about. That we can go running and looking for being heard and being seen and being welcomed by any host of human relationships, by any advancement in life, by a career, by a job, by more money, by this or that. And yet all of it always will leave us unfulfilled. 
At night, we may feel like it's Rachel, but in the morning, it's always Leah. And when Leah shifts away from trying to fill that restless longing in her soul from anything else but God, and when she turns to him, and when she says, this time I will praise the Lord, she's fulfilled. There's a prophecy at the end of Genesis, I think it's in 48 or 49, when it is from the line of Judah that we are told the king will come. When Rachel, when Leah rather, moved away from finding meaning in anything on earth and shifted her perspective to God, everything changed for her. And it was out of that act of adoration and praise and perspective shift and the son who represented that is a line that will lead all the way to the Messiah, to Jesus the Christ. Friends, there's so much instruction for us today here in Genesis 29. I guarantee everyone who walked in this building today, either now or sometime in the near future, you're going to have a longing in your heart. You're going to have an emptiness brought on by something. You're going to be looking for meaning somewhere. It's how we're created. None of us can get away from it. And if we attempt to deny that or to downplay it, all we do is cause our own harm. Because that feeling is there. And we can try to fill it with anything but God, or we can try to fill it with only God. And the pages of Scripture bear witness to what happens to people who try to fill that emptiness and that longing with everything but God, and people who fill it with only God. Leah shows us that it is only in a life given over to God in praise and worship that we find that longing fulfilled, that we find that inner emptiness is finally met because it meets its maker. Friends, shift your perspective today. Focus on the Lord. Don't look for other people to give you ultimate meeting. Don't look for others to see you and to hear you and to attach to you. It's only found in God. Amen.